0: On our podcasts, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, onto the show
1: hello and welcome to another episode of the opus well style podcast my name is ivan watanabe Uh, welcome to the podcast today uh, we have on uh once again bringing back jeremy suarez from tomorrow and michael kennerick from kennerick law how are you fellas
2: how you doing Good. good doing good ivan how are you
1: all good all good well welcome back um you know after our last podcast uh specifically talking about some estate planning and some business planning and exit planning um, we got some great feedback. And so we wanted to have you guys back on to follow up uh, our previous conversation. You know, there's a lot going on today with business owners evaluating their current situation with uh, some of the changes going on in the estate tax law or the proposed tax bill. So I wanted to have you both back on uh, just to talk a little bit about some of the tactical things that business owners can, can do today at taking both of those things into account. So, you know, why don't we just kind of kick it off Jeremy, specifically for you, you know, you and I talk a lot about again some of those tactical things that people can take care of with their their current employees. So right now, what are you seeing folks doing or business owners doing to, to take care of their their key personnel, their key employees, and and making sure that they are you know retaining those those folks long term?
3: Sure. So what I'll say, Ivan, is in you know, 2021, we've seen a significant uptick an In increase from our business owner clientele regarding the concept of attracting, rewarding, and retaining their key employees, right? It seems like the M&A market has shifted as it relates to its appetite to acquire certain types of businesses. So our business owners are kind of going back to the drawing board and saying, okay, key personnel is an integral part to ultimately continuing to drive value and growing and retaining our business. So in addition to you know your your typical corporate packages that you know historically have been healthcare, group life insurance, group disability insurance, 401k, we've we we've worked with uh many CPAs and attorneys concepts such as developing a retention bonus strategy, other forms uh of these types of strategies are called non-qualified, deferred compensation, etc. Essentially Plans that a business owner could target a target demographic of key personnel and staff and create a package that, again, supports the the, the possibility of reward, rewarding and retaining that individual at a higher level. We've also seen a an attraction or increase in inquiries regarding equity compensation packages as well as profit interests where business owners are taking the position that if we could tie our outcomes to the form of compensation that these key employees are ultimately accustomed to receiving, it, it, it aligns ultimately the business owner's goals and objectives with those of the key employees. So
1: why don't we sort of tackle one first? I mean, you of know, course, what would be an advantage of let, let's pretend I, I don't know anything about this. So what would if I'm the business owner, what would be the advantage of me doing a non-qualified deferred comp plan for it versus some of the other strategies that are out there?
3: Very simple. You could pick and choose, right? You could say what I want to do for John, I don't necessarily need to do for James, but I do also want to do something for Mary. And in that example, you could carve out John and Mary and ultimately create a, let's call it a retention package that is very specific for that individual, right? So you can make it very intimate and very bespoke for the for that person an example let's say mary has a daughter who is 15 years old and yes she's motivated by money but she's more so motivated by her family and college planning has not been addressed in her world so your business owner could sit down with your advisor along with that key employee and really have a constructive conversation around okay what's the goal and objectives and now we could set the metric and potentially the vesting to align with a future goal. And in my example, let's say that individual's um, daughter is go- set to graduate at a said date, we can have this compensation package vest at that point to ultimately align with what will be that need to ultimately fund college. So, you know, very baseline example, but discretion and the ability to pick and choose and be creative is really the advantage.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's huge, right? Because it, what, what it really ties into is what will make the employee happiest and and how do we dive into what is actually important to the employee because a lot of you know a lot of employers just think well money is the answer right i'm just going to throw extra money at this employee but maybe that's not what like you said that's not necessarily moves the needle for them so having that discretion is huge what are, what are some of the other examples of that you've that you've designed for clients recently to, to help address the employee need.
3: Sure. So we've we we really re looked at the traditional qualified plan of on as well, right? So you know typically yep. you have a four hundred one k, and for some employees they do an excellent job, or excuse me, employers do an excellent job in constantly referencing that with their with, with their key employees and all their employees to make sure that they're taking care of themselves as it relates to retirement planning. But at times we find that the plan becomes obsolete, right? The trajectory of the business changes, the certainly the demographics of the folks that are hired in the business change. So working with a qualified plan administrator, I think there's a tremendous amount of value of just going in and kind of restating what the current plan design is and aligning it with its goals and objectives. And at times what you'll find is there may be as a simple example, an underutilization of the Roth IRA component to a 401k. So simply the our advisory team, as the example, going out and sharing the benefits of tax-deferred growth and then having the ability to generate tax-free retirement dollars is a very impactful thing. Then you take it a step up, right? So if the individual has a 401k potentially with a match, just educating the employer on add-on plans such as profit sharing or even at the highest level, a defined benefit plan that could ultimately accomplish the goal of the employer putting away more tax-effective dollars and also carving out pockets of monies for their employees at various different levels. Right? Now, the key with that 401 k or a sponsored plan What you do for one individual, proportionally you have to do for others. So that's where inviting a qualified plan administrator to really kind of riff and have a discussion around what the census allows becomes so crucial. But dusting off the old 401k plan and and recasting it has been a tremendous value add for us.
1: It's interesting because there's so many 401k plans that are underutilized, you know, employers are putting these in place and their employees are are not participating for whatever reason, right? Either they don't know how it works or, you know, they're, they don't know how the underlying investments work or why they should be participating. Um, And, and then they, you know, they fail ERISA testing or, you know, there's just an, the fees are too high. They've been, underserved it seems like for me every time I evaluate a retirement plan and there's so many opportunities for people to just make sure that they're they're well um, they're well utilized Uh, and then again just having a general conversation saying this is what we want to accomplish as a business from a retirement planning standpoint how do we you know what's available to us out in the marketplace and, and how do we address a plan
3: Absolutely. In my opinion, the industry is so fee-conscious right now, and I believe that to be a very important thing. But just shedding or shining a, a, a greater spotlight on the current plan or the new version of the current plan could be a tremendous value. I can't tell you how many phone calls we get on with you know employees at various dev- different levels uh, within one's fir- firm or company. And the feedback is, oh, I didn't realize that, right? I didn't realize I could do that. Oh, I didn't realize those options are available to me. And that certainly increases the participation and the goodwill that, of course, the employers as well as the employees uh, ultimately want to partake in.
1: Are there any other unique things that you've been designing and and discussing with business owners recently about sort of either retention strategies or exit strategies?
3: On the retention side, there's there's different words, right? Whether it's retention bonus, non-qualified, deferred compensation, these are all you know industry jargon that just allows us to get creative in that space of on. So I would say those are the two key pieces. As it relates to exit strategies, we're seeing more and more discussions around succession planning or Planning to ultimately sell their business to an internal employee group or an internal employee group as well as family members, right? So Mm -hmm. after COVID, again, the appetite for a lot of big industry um depending on that you know the industry to write checks and ultimately buy your business may has ch- maybe has changed you know you know the the example that comes to mind is certainly hospitality right you know folks aren't lining up um this day and age now to write checks to buy restaurants it, it, right. it unfortunately is what it is at in this current environment but what we're finding is a lot of these businesses have stood the test of time actually have received a good amount of government dollars whether it you know the various phases of the PPP or the restaurant relief fund they they use those dollars as an opportunity to relook at their business maybe tighten the belt and recapitalize their balance sheet so they say going forward okay well if I don't have maybe an external qualified buyer let's look at the key employees that really supported us as we navigated this very difficult time and I believe That group to ultimately be a qualified legacy for my restaurant, because again, to your earlier point, it's not just about the money. A lot of these business owners want to at one point partially or fully exit their business, but they, you know, along with the dollars and the financial planning that goes along with that. Quite frankly, they still want to walk down Main Street and see that their business is still thriving, right? So that key yep. employee or sale to a key employee group tends to be something that at least they say, you know, tell me more about that. How can I structure that? So when
1: you're, when you're designing a plan, I mean, what does that look like? What are the, what are the steps that they need to take? And, and tactically, are there any unique strategies that you've been thinking about these days that maybe didn't previously exist or, or that, you know, you've sort of adopted in your, in your model?
3: Sure. So the first the first piece is creating a balance between their cash compensation and their deferred compensation. Um, the big scare for a lot of these employees, especially in closely held businesses, is that they're going to write a check on a Monday. And then in the subsequent year, ultimately, that key employee is going to get poached and ultimately leave them. Right. So that creates decent economics for the employee, horrible economics for the employer. So creating a balance within that, I think, is the start point. The second piece now, in addition to this form of deferred compensation, where a lot of times people viewed it as a bogey and at that point, that's when their money is going to ultimately be delivered to them, adding provisions in documents that you know we work with, with qualified folks to develop around utilizing that money then in return as a buy-in for equity, whether it be a mi- minority or majority. That has been an additional layer of, I don't want to say complexity, but a, a lay, layer of planning consideration that I'm starting to see work its way into these plan on, because ultimately, again, it, it, it aligns the the future goal of the employee as well as the employers, provided that, that, that employee does aspire to ultimately be an equity owner at some point. And shockingly enough, um, not everyone wants equity. Not everybody wants to be a business owner, right? So yep. um, getting into... What it is that the key employee really wants to see and having that active discussion, I think, affords a tremendous of a lot of value and it allows the employer to really learn about their employee and what their tenure is ultimately going to shape out and look like with with the business. So, you know, what are the things that you want
1: to make sure that the audience kind of takes away specifically or, or some things that, again, that have popped up for you Recently that either haven't been addressed whether it be in the risk management space or the retirement planning space like what are the things that um, That you really really want to make sure from a tactical perspective that folks take away from today.
3: Sure. So I would say Using potentially some downtime or strategic sessions with your CPA your financial advisor your attorney, whoever To relook at the plans that they have in place and just ensure that it's still aligned with the goals and objectives of what could be now the new version of their business. Mm. And to constantly ask questions, right? Don't settle for, you know, the traditional financial planning like, okay, we have a 401k and a healthcare plan. Constantly ask the what if questions, right? Like what, what if I do want to discriminate and carve out something special for my key employees? What are the various options that are available there? Um, how will that help me now? And how will that also help me not only in the future in keeping these folks around, but how maybe it could be a Swiss Army knife approach where it also allows for you to sell a portion or all of your business later on down the line, right? So just constantly stay in that in- inquiry. Google is good, but you know, what I'm finding is people get hit with so many different opinions and options. I think starting with your, 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 your close advisory team is, is probably the key piece another area that we look at and i think mike may touch on as well is key man insurance right we're finding that the economics in certain types of life insurance policies that an employer could purchase for the benefit of their key employee and how that gets divided will be could be custom but the idea of key man insurance not only on the employer but also the employee comes our way very often um and, and it's probably something to look at as well and that could be structured again in a very specific way that could allow the individual to pick and choose who participates and who does not participate
1: why don't I, you know that's been you know keep key man insurance has been something that we've been that we've been helping clients with for for a number of years now right but it's really been more and more prevalent especially as people start to evaluate risk these days you know i think COVID brought up a lot of sort of risk concerns for folks health wise and you know we're seeing a lot of you know acquisitions requiring key man insurance on on the heads of businesses so that you know god forbid they weren't here um, or something happened to them that the entire deal doesn't blow apart or the business doesn't blow up. So can you just talk a little bit more specifically about key man insurance and, and, and why it works and and, um, and
3: why you think it makes sense? Absolutely. Um, right now, the appetite is for cash flow and human capital, right? So securing that individual, both with disability and life insurance, ultimately becomes a, again, a Swiss army approach where now in the event that that individual were to, God forbid, pass away or become disabled, their economic value, right? Their ability to drive revenue within the business is no longer, is not disruptive. And depending on how it's structured, a portion of that could go to that employee's estate to make sure that their family is taken care of. But as it relates to the employer, now suddenly it creates a liquidity event at a horrible time in life. For them to go out there, exercise some patience, have the capital to then go to market and survey you know, the hiring of the next CEO or COO or managing director, et cetera, right? So life insurance, as, a, as we understand it, creates the cash on the business owner's balance sheet to navigate what otherwise is a very difficult time. And then depending on the type of life insurance, again, we don't want to only plan just for the death occurrence, which is somewhat unlikely, or the disability occurrence, which I guess is more likely versus the death. But also there are certain types of policies that reserve capital, right, or storehold cash, that we believe to be a a much more efficient storeholder than, say, regular cash or a line of credit that comes with cost or lost opportunity. So we're finding that A lot of business owners in the small marketplace are using life insurance cash values to also play offense within their business, whether it's to buy more machinery, whether it's to buy um, real estate or expand their enterprise. That could be a um, a multidimensional tool that the business owner should at least consider. So life insurance and disability repurposed fundamental concepts that are now, again, getting looked at a little bit more closely with with the wake of COVID now passing us. Yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, it, it's funny because both both from a, a retention standpoint, but also from an exit planning standpoint, you want to have these conversations when things are going well, when everybody's doing well, when everybody's happy. You know, it, it's really difficult to to find out, hey, you know, my employee has decided to look for or found another job. You know, can we try to come up with something on the fly to make them happy? You know, those type of defensive are are just not as successful for employers you know I find I don't know what your thoughts are but you know I really feel like these conversations need to be had when things are going well when people are happy
3: being proactive than than uh, than anything else exactly you get into a negotiation um, and the employer kind of leaves that whole discussion around okay well geez now I have to pay more and I didn't want to then the employee is well all right, even if they were able to retain that individual, well, why didn't you give me this package before? It's funny, I have a call coming up in an hour, and we're working through a census, Yvonne, for a you know, this retention bonus concept. And literally since we've booked our meeting with our with, with our uh, business owner client, he's added three more people to the pool of consideration. And the reason for that is he is in a mechanical fit out business. And ultimately, those three individuals have been approached by competitors now to ultimately leave his business, right? And of course, they're getting bigger wages, bigger salary, more overtime, all of that, right? So we're we're now in a reactive position to now respond to this employee's request where if we would have met three years ago, that employee would have had a unvested plan that they're working towards. They would have been happy the economics in their life in their home their personal household would have been taken care of and when that competitor came knocking on the door they would have simply said you know what i'm good where i'm at right so being reactive is never a positive tactic or strategy
1: yeah absolutely and i think that kind of gives us a really solid pivot to you michael on sort of what you're doing these days specifically as it relates to the proposed tax bill and the and the the estate planning side of of getting organized figuring out you know how to be proactive so before we start why don't you just kind of give us a lay of the land as to what's going on in that space and then you know what you're doing tactically to help help out clients
2: yeah so uh back in september a a bill was uh drafted by the i guess the, the you know, called the democrats and under the There are multiple changes to the tax law But specific to the estate tax uh, law there are A couple things were going on One is the estate tax exemption Was going to be cut in half So it would, it's going to drop From about 12 million To about 6 million And just so we're clear What that means is uh, at, at somebody's death The assets when they pass assets To their family They pass tax free up to a certain number once you leave more than that number to your family, there's a pretty substantial estate tax on the overage, okay? The, the current rate, it was 40%, and in the new tax bill, uh, it, it also stays at 40%. So on, in the current law, the exemption is almost $12 million that can pass to your family tax-free. Again, under the new law, which is not put into play yet, but starting Jan 1, uh, if this bill would pass, it would be dropped down to about $6 million. The other important thing from the estate tax perspective is one of the main strategies that we use to try to help our clients uh, mitigate estate taxes or avoid them altogether if possible uh, our, our strategies uh, revolving around uh, the, the use of what we call grantor trusts. All right, so grantor trusts are, are a technique that we use to help clients reduce their estate tax exposure. I'll, I'll explain in, in a little bit in detail sh- shortly. Essentially, what the, what the draft bill said was that you know, going forward, any assets transferred to grantor trusts are going to be includable in the estate of the person transferring the asset into the trust. That completely defeats the purpose of the of the tactic altogether. So, <laughs> right. so it would essentially eliminate a, a very tried and true tactic that that we've been using for years and is probably the one of the best tactics we have to to get around the estate tax. Uh, they're trying to eliminate that now. While I do believe that. A new tax law will ultimately get passed here and will probably include the reduction of the estate tax exemption. I'm not totally buying that they're gonna permanently take away the use of Grantor Trust. We'll see. And and my advice at this point to clients that are thinking about doing estate tax planning is: yes, let's get it done now, uh, just in case they do take it away because the bill does say that any transactions completed prior to its passing will be grandfathered in, um, meaning that you are able to transfer assets to grantor trusts and keep them out of your estate for estate tax purposes as long as the transaction is complete prior to the passing of the new law. So again, while I'm not totally believing that uh, you're going to get enough votes to go along with that that uh, change in the tax law, uh, better, better to be safe than sorry. And let's get this thing done now. while we while we know for sure it's kosher.
1: Absolutely. You know, again, like any other strategy, it's important for us to remain proactive than reactive. And, you know, now we've only got a couple of months left in the year to sort of get these types of things done if, if in fact this, you know, bill does pass. But um, strategically, tell tell the audience a little bit more about how to how to get that done, why it works. You know, what, sure. what are the other details you want them to know?
2: Yeah. So, 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 so the strategy looks like this, and this has definitely become uh, you know the most popular thing going over the last couple of months. Uh, a, a business owner's concern generally is that because again, upon their passing, the assets in excess of the estate tax exemption are going to be taxed, you know, at forty percent rates the value of their business which is included in that calculation you know may really push the, the the estate into a pretty high taxable situation right so for example someone that has a 20 million dollar business and let's say 5 million dollars of other assets all right and when they calculate the estate tax everything counts so that, so a lot of times people might underestimate what the value of their estate is. So when I say everything, it's you know the value of the business, the, their their retirement accounts, their the payouts on any life insurance policies they have, their their real estate, you know, their their home, any other homes, any business real estate, like all of this stuff gets added up. So so numbers add up pretty quickly. So in the example I just gave, let's say someone has an estate of 20 uh, a business that's valued at $20 million and $5 million of other assets and they pass and the estate passes to their children so they have a 25 million dollar estate with the new exemption if it goes to six million you know that makes 19 million of the 25 million taxable at 40 percent rates you know that's a slightly under eight million dollar tax bill that tax bill is due you know nine months from the date of their death where's that money coming from you know the business is going to have to get sold in order to pay for the tax bill now there are you know, there are some exceptions in the tax law when, the, when, a, when a closely held business makes up the, the, the bulk of your estate, uh, you know, as far as the timing of the payments. The, you know, there, there is some, some uh, help there with, with pushing that off a little bit. But at the end of the day, you know, there's some serious tax bill coming their way. The strategy then is to get the business out of the name of the client prior to their death. So that when they die, if they don't own this business any longer, then they don't have $20 million of of business value in their estate. Now, the immediate reaction to that statement would be, well, what do you mean? This is my business. I run this business. I live off the business. (laughs) Like, what do you mean I don't own the business anymore? So what the strategy looks like is that, generally speaking, we've been transferring uh, clients' business interests to family trusts. All right, so so the client would set up a trust for the benefit of their family. Generally speaking, that's their spouse and children, uh, you know, grandchildren, etc. And they would transfer a usually non-controlling interest in the business. So, what does non-controlling mean? Well, it could mean forty-nine percent, um, but it could also mean non-voting. Interest, even if it makes up 99% of the business. So we'll see a lot of the times, let's say, a client has a business and it's an S Corp and there's 100 shares of stock that's been issued and the client owns all 100 shares. You know, we can recapitalize those shares into voting and non-voting shares. We can make 99 of the shares non-voting, one of the shares voting, and then the client can transfer 99 non-voting shares to the business. So basically, they only own 1% of the company going forward. Their family trust owns the other 99%, but they own the only voting interest in the company and as such continue to run and control the whole business even though they only technically own 1% of it. All right. So... Once the business is transferred to the family trust, and why that's important is it's no longer part of their estate for estate tax purposes. So now when they die, if the business is worth $20 million, but they only own 1% of it, then that's all that is going to be included in their estate. While they are alive, the trust owns 99%, or even after they pass, the trust owns 99%. The business can continue to... Um, you know, A, pay the owner a salary that, you know, the, the ownership of the business is, is irrelevant to the owner collecting a salary. Yep. Or B, when distributions of profit go into the trust, a lot of times business owners, you know, maybe they don't take a salary. Maybe they just live off of the profits of the business. You know, when, when now the profits of the business belong, at least 99% of them do, to the trust. So the trust gets the, the, the profits distributions. But remember, the trust is for the benefit of the client's family. So now... You know, distributions need to be made to the client's spouse. The trust can make distributions to the client's spouse, so the trust gets the profits, and then it distributes them out to the spouse. And now, you know, now the the client continues to live their life as they as they normally would. A couple of interesting, you know, things that really have, again, lit some fire here about getting this done is, you know, one that strategy as I just described that trust, you know, which really is helpful in making this whole thing work. Again, before what I was saying about how they're now going to say, well, even if you do that, the assets and the trust are going to be included in your estate. That's a problem if that goes through. So we want the right. trust to get funded prior to that happening. And and two, when a client gifts their business to the trust, and that's what's going on here, they're gifting their assets to the trust. They're gifting the business into, to the trust. You know, people are under the false impression that you're only allowed to gift $15,000 you know, a year. So th- that's not accurate. You're able to gift up to the estate tax exemption. Okay. So again, the estate tax exemption is currently $11.7 million. That means a client can actually give away. And when I, again, when I say give away, I'm talking about con- contributing it to the family trust. They could actually give away $11.7 million. Now what that does is when they die, their estate tax exemption that they can use to pass assets tax-free to their family is going to be reduced by any of these gifts above fifteen thousand dollars that they've made while they're alive. So, for example, if a client gives their, you know ten million dollars worth of a business interest away when they die, and if the exemption at the time was eleven point seven million dollars, you know they don't have eleven point seven million dollars to to give away at their death tax-free. They only have one point seven. In other words, they use ten million of it up. What we have going on now is until the end of the year, clients still have the ability to give away $11.7 million worth of assets. If that number drops to 6 million next year, it's true that the client won't have any left when they die. They were able to move 11.7 tax-free, whereas a client who doesn't take advantage of the current exemption, let's say they do nothing, they will keep, you know, and the exemption drops to six. When they die, yes, their entire $6 million is of exemption still intact. But now they're only able to pass 6000000 million tax-free where the client that took advantage of the current exemption while it existed was able to move $11.7 million out of their estate tax-free. So you sort of are in this sort of use it or lose it. Uh, situation right now where for the next couple of months we know our clients have the ability to gift away $11.7 million and after after the end of the year we don't know that that's going to be the case in fact it looks like it won't be and, and they're only going to have half that much Right. so it's um, it, it's certainly you know important that clients thinking about this strategy to take action you know pretty quickly at this point as, as we're kind of running out of time by year end
1: i know you've worked miracles in terms of timing but you know we've only got a couple of months left right so what's the what's the process look like how how do people sort of where should they start and what's the quickest way to get this accomplished uh um, yeah, before I, the end of the year
2: yeah i think that you know the start is to have a conversation with their estate planning attorney right yep so that that's that's always going to be the the beginning of this process from there yeah, a lot of stuff has to happen, right? The estate planning attorney's got to draft the trust. We need the business to be valued, right? So we have to know exactly how much we're giving away. Because if I tell a client, "Hey, let's just put ninety-nine percent of this business in, into into the family trust," and it turns out that that ninety-nine percent is worth fifty million dollars, well, I'm only allowed to give away eleven point seven. What have I done here? Right? I, that's a right. that's a major problem. So I, 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 we need to have a handle on the value and. When you make gifts in excess of $15,000, you have to let the IRS know that you've made the gift and that you've used up some or all of your exemption. So you're selling theirs, hey, I gave away my, you know, 99% of my business or 50% of my business or whatever percent. I gave away that, and it's worth X amount of dollars, and, and so I've used up that much exemption. And then the question, of course, is, well, how did you know it was worth X amount of dollars, right? This isn't giving away Apple stock. We know we know what Apple stock yeah. is worth. So that has to be backed up by an appraisal, right? So the IRS doesn't just take your word for it. They want to see that you had an appraisal done. And so that's another part of this process, you know? So, so it's drafting the trust. It's getting the appraisal done. Now, interestingly enough, and I didn't mention this before, but you know it, an advantage of giving away a business versus giving away apple stock or that kind of thing is the fact that we don't know exactly how much it's worth so a client that might have their you know their mindset on hey this thing's going in a great direction i i i feel like i'm gonna you know i have some deals coming my way and as i grow this thing i'm i'm, I'm getting traction here and, and i think in five years i think i'm going to sell this thing for like 50 million dollars That doesn't mean that the appraisal is going to come out right now at $50 million. You know, it's it's what's the business worth today. And and when an appraiser appraises a business, there's obviously a wide range of of landing spots there right there's no yep. it's 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 not an exact science appraising a business so you know we we'll, we'll, we tell the appraiser listen we know that you could come out with a different range depending on the, me- the method of valuation you use you know we, we'd like you to come out as on, on the lower end of of the possibilities here right so so we want you know again the irs can contest it you can't just get a ridiculous appraisal Yeah, you know where we say a 50 million dollar business is worth five dollars but you know, on on the lower end of what's reasonable. and so so you have wiggle room there. In addition to that, because generally speaking, the client again wants to hold on to the control of the business and therefore we'll retain you know fifty one percent or will retain the one only the only voting interest. What the client is giving away are, are non-controlling interests. Well, non-controlling right. interests aren't worth as much. So, uh, you, know, exi- you know, even though if the client can sell the business for ten million dollars to a third party right now, ninety-nine, you know, th- that that buyer of the business, he's he would maybe buy the business for ten million dollars, knowing that he has the business and can control it. That, that same guy is not going to buy 99% non-controlling interest in the business for 9.9 million dollars. Why would he spend 9.9 million dollars on a10 million dollar business that he and then at the end of the sale has no say over anything about how anything works you know like that's just not going to happen. so so the value of the non-voting shares will be discounted by the we're using you know pretty good values here when we give away the business and so in, in other words, let's say this guy, Gives away ninety nine percent of his business, the appraisal would have come in at ten million dollars for the whole business, and, and now because it's the non voting, you know non controlling interest, maybe it comes in at seven million dollars. Okay, so we so we make the gift, we report it. It's a seven million dollar gift. F- five years from now, the 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 client does what they think they're going to do. They grow the business. They you know things are going the right way that they thought they were going to go. They sell it for fifty million dollars the trust now comes into 50 million dollars or 99% of 50 million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's all money that's not in the client's estate. Whereas right. had the client held on to the business saying, "Oh, you know, it's it's worth 10 million dollars. I have 11.7 million of exemption. And I don't have a problem." Well, you know, now you do have a problem because just you, because your business went did well. Right. And right, right. and now you now you have 50 million in your name versus the trust having 50 million in its name. So, you know, there, there's a big advantage in doing this with business interests versus just, you know, general marketable securities type stuff. But anyway, um, I, you know, I sort of digressed from your question, which was timing and what else has to get done. I started talking down the appraisal path here. But so, yeah, so it's the drafting of the trust. It's the appraisal. It's the actual transfer of the, of the business into the trust, you know. So there's there's work there that has to get done to officially move – the the business on the books and records of the company and 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 make it official and all you know dot all the i's and cross all the t's so you know i don't want to say you know you're you're too late at this point you know we're still two months left in the year so you're not too late but don't start this on december 15th and think you're gonna complete it by december 31st
1: right right guys as we kind of wrap up the podcast today first just wanted to say thank you again for 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 being on it has been incredibly valuable specifically for for all of the business owner clients that are out there and and bottom line that i'm hearing from both of you is listen we need to move soon and fast and be proactive with any type of planning and start the conversation whether or not you decide to implement the strategies is, is a totally separate conversation but you know moving forward being proactive and starting these conversations with your advisors today um, is critically important. So, uh, Michael, uh, can you just give your contact information again? You know, if somebody wants to run through their estate planning proposals with you, you know, just how can they find you?
2: Sure. Uh, you could call me. My my uh, office direct dial is 732-800-0163. You can email me, uh, a little bit lengthy here, but it's M like Mike, my last name, Canarick, which is spelled C-A-N-A-R-I-C-K, at Canarick, Dash like the hyphen sign law.com. Or you can go on my website and pull all that information. I think my contact information is on my website, uh, which is www.canaric law.com.
1: Perfect. And Jeremy, for any business owners that are trying to evaluate their situation, uh, where can they find
3: you? Sure. Well, one, they could always contact you, Yvonne. Um, you know, we tend to collaborate in the business owner space. Um, they could yeah. also reach me at 732. 732- five two eight two two three one um they could also send an email which is j suarez s-u-a-r-e-z at tomorrownow.com so t-o-m as in mary o-r-o-n as in nancy o com. great well again
1: guys i appreciate the partnership you guys have been tremendous for us uh, we love working together and uh, i appreciate the time and, and to you the listening audience Thank you for tuning in. Again, check out the original podcast that we did for for business owner clients, um, as well as this podcast and any future podcasts. Uh, Please feel free to subscribe below to be notified uh, when we come out with a new episode. Thanks so much. Be well, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available.
4: This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, Opus Private Client and opinions stated are their own. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC and your financial representative are not undertaking to provide investment advice or make a recommendation for a specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Yvonne Wantanabe is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities LLC, PAS. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Insurance License Number 0H44206. Compliance Approval 2023-157682. Expires June 2025.